This is not the end of the book of Acts, but it's pretty close. We are in Acts 27 today, and I, I have been so impressed with Paul through his whole trial and his arrest. I mean, remember when he was he was, spoke to the crowd and they were all rioting and they arrested him and they said, you know, let's let's take this guy. And he said, well, can you arrest a Roman citizen? Can I talk to them for a minute? And he was just calm and bold. And they sat him out there and, and he spoke to them in Hebrew and he pled this case and gave this great speech. And they riot again and they pull him in. They're like, we're going to whip him. And that would probably mean he would die. He would probably... Uh, a lot of people died from a Roman whipping. And it says, while they were tying him up, he said, is it legal to whip a Roman citizen without a trial? You know, he's just real calm kind of thing. And so, you know, he gets out of that. And then they're going to, this other series of trials, he was in prison for two years under Felix. And then Felix got fired and left Paul there in prison, Festus came. Festus is like, what in the world are you doing in prison for? Can't figure it out. Paul is bold before Festus. Paul speaks before King Agrippa and his wife, and he is bold to the point where King Agrippa would say, "Are you think you're going to make me a Christian like in one talk, like so fast? I mean, he's not really respecting Paul. He's kind of mocking him. And Paul is just like, I wish everybody in this room would be a Christian. I wish every one of you would be like me, except for these chains. And it's just like, wow, just brave. Um, he's not afraid of getting whipped again. He's not afraid of making anybody mad. There were times where he would say stuff and it said that he would talk about the second coming in judgment. And Felix would get disturbed and send him away. So Paul wasn't afraid to preach about something that was going to disturb this person that had the power of life and death over him. So the boldness of Paul is evident and it's only going to show off more as we get further into this. So the last lines of Acts 26, if he had not appealed to Caesar, he, we could set him free. Opening lines of Acts 27, when it was decided that we should sail for Italy, right? They're going to Rome. They delivered Paul and some other prisoners to a centurion of the Augustan cohort named Julius. Remember, every time you hear centurion, he's got a hundred people behind him. It's kind of like a barbershop quartet. There's no barbershop quartet that has one person in it. There's no centurion that's all by himself. There's a hundred other soldiers with that centurion. And so they have other prisoners they would not have out they would not have given them so many prisoners that there would be more prisoners than two soldiers for every prisoner so if there's a hundred centurions and Julius their leader or a hundred one centurion and his hundred men the most prisoners they would have is 50 prisoners so Whatever you thought of, you know, you see the Jesus movies and Jesus and the disciples are on this little boat. That's a little fishing boat. And I don't even know how accurate all those movies are. But that's a little fishing boat with fishermen in it. This is a grain transporter from Alexandria. 
This sucker is big. It is a big, big, big boat. It, um, yes, we'll, we'll talk about how many people are on that boat in a little bit. But it can easily hold the centurion and his hundred men. It can easily hold a centurion and a hundred men and 50 prisoners. It's so big. So this is a, this is a whopper of a boat. Now, whenever I used to read these, I used to think about like the Nina and the Pinta and the Santa Maria or like pirate ships, right? Or the Age of Exploration and Magellan and all that. That's over a thousand years of technology after this. So these boats look a lot more like a big oval, like a big, uh, like a hard-boiled egg cut in half, <laughs> except it would just be no, more like a jelly bean. Imagine a big jelly bean cut in half and a big rectangular sail in the middle of it that you could turn around in any direction because they don't, they don't have like the whole technology of spinnakers and triangle sails that you can sail almost into the wind and tack and all that. None of that has happened yet. This is, we're talking in the zeros AD. They didn't have rudders. The front and the back of the ship weren't that different. They had paddles sticking out of the side and you would get a whole bunch of people on the paddle to paddle it the way you turn a rowboat. And that was how you steered. So you would steer by rotating the boat in the middle with these big paddles. Pretty far cry from today, right? Far cry even from like 1700s kind of ships. But it's holding a ton of grain. And this was the best and uh, one of the few ways to get grain from Egypt all the way up to Rome because Rome couldn't grow grain enough to support all their people, so they would import it. Um, There's one thing I read of the Roman Empire, Egypt was the breadbasket for Rome. Just like you might've heard on the news that Ukraine is the breadbasket for much of Asia. And they're talking about because of the Ukrainian war, there's gonna be famine all over Asia and parts of the Middle East, and it's, it's gonna be really bad. In this time, it was these kinds of grain ships that would bring grain to Rome. And if they, you know, supply and demand, supply and demand was, you know, coined in modern economics, it was still the case here. In the winter time, when there wasn't very much grain and it was really hard to get a boat into Rome, you got paid a whole lot more if you were able to bring your boat in full of grain in the winter time, when they, when they would be under a minor famine, sometimes a major famine. That'll come up in a minute. So they get on this boat, Julius, this, the, uh, I almost said a centaur, not a centaur, centurion, has his hundred men, has a whole bunch of prisoners. Some of these prisoners are gonna be like Paul, where it's just stupid and it's political. Some of them are gonna be murderers and killers and bad stuff. We don't know. They get on the boat. They sail along the ports of the coast of Asia. They put to sea, accompanied by Aristarchus, a Macedonian from Thessalonica. Aristarchus is mentioned in a couple other letters by Paul. He, Paul calls him a co-worker. 
in the gospel. So we don't know whether he's on here for the ride. Paul mentions him as a prisoner. So we don't know at what point he became a prisoner or why, but he's mentioned in other places. And then remember I said in another week, they didn't just go out into the ocean and navigate with their GPS and figure out where they're going. You only had wind during the day. And so you'd spend the day hugging the coast and you just go blip, 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 little city to city. I mean, it's almost like you're driving your car and you can only put one gallon of gas in it at a time. So you're going gas station to gas station to gas station all the way up to Washington, Indiana kind of thing. You're just making these little, little, and then as soon as the sun goes down, the wind stops, you're stuck. You hope you're at shore. So they go, the next day we put in at Sidon, Julius treated Paul kindly and gave him leave to go to his friends and be cared for. So Paul's getting some favor. There, this funny word in here, Julius treated Paul kindly. There's, a, there's a, an implied thing that he treated him with brotherly love because he was also a Roman citizen. So you kind of get the idea that not many of these soldiers are Roman citizens. Probably none of the other prisoners are Roman citizens. But since Paul's a Roman citizen, Julius is like, bro, we Romans got to stick together. I'll let you, I'll take care of you. I'll give you these. So Paul gets to go in and continue church planting and to continue building up the church, which is awesome. There's also no record that Paul has ever been to Sidon before. And so as he comes, everybody be like, Paul, all the missionary trips you've been on, you've never been able to come here. We're so glad you're here. And they would take care of it. Then they put out to sea from where they sailed under the lee of Cyprus because the winds were against us. So if you got your map in the back of your study Bible, you can see where Cyprus is. And they had to go around the bottom of it to be not on the windy side of it so they wouldn't get blown into it. Starts to give you a hint of how little control they really have in these boats. They don't have a lot of, you know, we don't care what the weather is, we can go wherever we want. No. When we had sailed across the open sea along the coast of Cilicia and Pamphylia, we came to Myra in Lycia. So in order to sail across the open sea, they're gonna to have to be in a different kind of boat. They're going to take on all kinds of new risks because when they go out into the open sea, they don't have um, all of the uh, navigation and sextants and compasses. Compasses weren't even invented yet. So you think it's nighttime. How do I know which way north is? There was some beginnings of navigating by stars, but not, not nearly as advanced as it was even in the 1000s and the 1200s. So... The, the risk is upping here. There the centurion found a ship of Alexandria sailing for Italy and put us on board. So now they really are on an Alexandrian grain ship. And sailing for Italy. We sailed slowly for a number of days and arrived with difficulty off of Canidus as the wind did not allow us to go further. We sailed under the lee of Crete off of Salome Coasting along with, it, with difficulty, we came to a place called Fair Havens near the city of Lassia. So they, I mean, they're given this detailed account and it's hard. 
it is a hard journey. Since much time passed and the voyage was now dangerous because even the fast was already over, Paul advised them, Sirs, I perceive that the voyage will be with injury and much loss, not only of the cargo and the ship, but also of our lives. So they had a saying among sailors, not one of those sayings, a different saying that they said, you never sail after October. From October into the spring, you just do not sail. The water is too rough. And so, like I said, Rome would pay extra high amounts for grain if you sailed during that time and delivered it. They would even, if you lost something while you were sailing there, they would pay you back for whatever you lost. Now, if you didn't show up with your ship at all and all your men were dead, they wouldn't pay you back for that because you got nothing. So this is kind of cool. They're in this port and Paul says, you guys, we should not go on. The sea is rough. You're going to lose, you're going to lose people. You're going to lose cargo. And you might think, I mean, I'm sure they thought, what does this guy know? He's a rabbi. What does this rabbi know about anything? Well, let's, let's just take a moment. Keep your finger on that section of Acts. In 2 Corinthians 11, Paul is talking about a list. And this list that he made, he made before Acts 27. Listen to this. Three times I was beaten with rods. Once I was stoned. Three times I was shipwrecked. A night and a day I was adrift at sea. On frequent journeys in danger from rivers, danger from robbers, danger from my own people, danger from the Gentiles, danger in the city, danger in the wilderness, danger at sea, and danger from false brothers. That's how Paul is summing up his life before he ever got arrested in Jerusalem. So he knows about sea travel. Dudes, what? three times he's been shipwrecked, and one of those times he spent a night and a day adrift at sea. <laughs> so it's like, and he's telling them, you guys, just trust me. You do not want to sail. We want to spend the winter here because it's going to get bad. But the centurion paid more attention to the pilot and the owner of the ship than to what Paul said. They didn't listen to him. Well, some of it is going to be because they're going to make some major cash money if they can get. Yes, of course, the sea is rough. That's why we're going to make so much money off of this grain, right? Because the harbor was not suitable to spend the winter. The majority decided to put out to sea from there on the chance that somehow they could reach the city of Phoenix, a harbor of Crete facing both the southwest and the northwest and spend the winter there. So they we're not going to we know we're not going to make it to Rome over winter, but at least we can get closer. We can get closer. So maybe there'll be a few nice days that in the middle of winter we could zip up there and get our extra money. So there's another thing that's going on. So if I tell a story, you guys, you know this happens, right? I grew up seeing Star Wars, playing with G.I. Joes. So anytime I tell a story about something that happened to me, I'm also thinking about Star Wars. Or I'm thinking about G.I. Joes. Or I'm thinking about Transformers. And so the stories that I have heard 
affect the way I tell stories. Whenever, you know, our kids will read a book in school, and then after that, something completely disconnected will happen, but everybody's like, oh, that's just like in Tom Sawyer when he did this, or, you know, that's just like, and we connect it to the stories we have. So it doesn't mean that the story I tell isn't true, but it means the way I'm going to tell you the story is going to be influenced by the stories I've heard. And from this time period and before this, there was a whole genre of Greek literature that was the sea voyage adventure. And in the sea voyage adventure type of stories that the Greek people would be familiar with, that the Greek people that Luke is writing the book of Acts for would be familiar with, there's a thing that would happen in a sea voyage where if the gods were angry at you, no matter what you did on your boat, you were dead. Judgment was coming. And that's how the bad guys in the sea voyage books, they all got what was coming to them because the gods of the sea and circumstances and fate, bad things would happen and they'd be destroyed. And the heroes who were good guys and did all the right things, all kinds of awesome things would happen and they would be rescued from the sea. So Luke is writing this and he's influenced by those because he's read them before. And there's some fun things that happen in this that you realize he's telling the story. It doesn't mean it's not true. doesn't mean he's making this stuff up. It's just the way he tells it is luring us into this adventure tale. Okay. One of these examples is in Acts 27, 13. When the south wind blew gently. Oh, wait, wait. So go back. We've already had one of these. Paul has said, you guys, we should not sail. You're going to lose your cargo. You're going to lose people. Just that being mentioned makes you think, so there's risk. We've already heard all these cities they've been to, how difficult it is just to sail, right? So all of that is setting up. Now verse 13. When the south wind blew gently, supposing they had obtained their purpose, they weighed anchor and sailed along Crete close to the shore. The south wind blowing gently is like the most perfect thing in the world. It's like... It's like the sizzle and smell of bacon when you wake up in the morning. It's like, yes, my day is going to be awesome. These sailors are like, this is the most perfect wind. You know what this is? This, so if this was one of these Greek tales of the gods and goddesses, this would be the sea just luring them out. Come on, a little closer. That's what this is. They suppose they had obtained their purpose. They weighed anchor, sailed along Crete. Now we know Luke is writing this and he's inspired by the Holy Spirit. And what else is going on here? They are not listening to the man of God. They are judging their fate by their circumstances. They're judging their favor with the deities that they believe in by the circumstances around them. And then they're acting on that instead of listening to what Paul said. But soon a tempestuous wind called the Northeaster struck down from the land. All right, so I don't know what your translation says. If it says tempestuous wind, it's kind of a funny, a funny word um, because it's just hard to translate 
these words, but it's kind of like they said a twister or a typhoon. This is not just a strong wind. This is a, a, a type of weather wind that has a technical term in Greek that they translate here into tempestuous wind. So it's like a tornado. It's like a, a straight line wind. It's like the stuff that brought trees down on houses and all that, right? It's not just the wind blew. It was, and it blows them. And so that, now all of a sudden, if you're a Greek person reading the seafaring adventure story, you're like, oh, they're dead. Like they did something wrong. What'd they do wrong? They didn't listen to Paul. When Paul said we shouldn't go, now something's happened. The ship was caught, could not face the wind. They gave way to it and were driven along. So again, sailing technology, this is a huge boat. It's got over 150 some odd crew on it or people on it. it just, it's just hard to steer and it's hard to control. And so they have to give up and just let the wind blow it into the ocean until the wind is, stops. They run under the lee of a small island called Kata and we managed with difficulty to secure the ship's boat. This is like the little lifeboat that would be tied to the side of it. And it's awesome that they mention that because, oh, well, that's good. They've got a lifeboat, right? Okay, just hold on to that. After they hoist it up, they used supports to undergird the ship. So they used to do a thing where they would throw ropes off of one side of the boat that would wash underneath the ship. And then the ropes would be visible on the other side of the boat and they would pull those ropes up and that would tie the whole bottom of the ship together because as it's getting beat by waves and hit, and if it's gonna run aground, you have all those ropes holding it together. So this is a pretty desperate move that they're doing. So they, they do all that, they, um, they secure the lifeboat. They're afraid that they're gonna run aground. So they lower the gear, they lower all their sails, the mast, everything that's up there, lower it down so no wind is going to blow us very much. And they're driven along. Since we were violently storm-tossed, on the next day, they began throwing off cargo. We are getting so shook, we're taking on so much water, we got to start throwing stuff overboard. This is, this is how we're going to survive. On the third day, they threw the ship's tackle overboard with their own hands. That is a really big deal. This is what we do to control the ship. This is how we drive the boat. This is like the only thing we can do to survive is to take the motor and to chop the motor off the back of the boat and drop it into the ocean. I mean, it's that level of, and so when Luke writes it, it's with their own hands. Like the storm has been trying to knock stuff off the boat. The storm has been beating all this stuff and they've been trying to protect it. And now they're like, we just want to float. We don't care. Just floating would be great. And so with their own hands, they throw off the last bit of control that they have from the wind. That's pretty much uh, a give up, right? I mean, they, they're hopeless at that point. The third day, they threw the ship's tackle overboard with their own hands. When neither sun nor stars appeared for many days and no small tempest lay on us. So it's still storming for days and days and days. 
All hope of our being saved was at last abandoned. They have given up being rescued. Since they had been without food for a long time, Paul stood up among them and he said, Men, I told you. <laughs> Isn't that awesome? This is so out of character for Paul. Like all of his, all of his meekness, all of his humility. You should have listened to me and have not set sail from Crete and incurred all this injury and loss. I just think that's awesome. Like as a person who loves to be able to say, I told you so, but doesn't really get to say that very often. I just feel that that's just, yes, no, it's terrible. You guys, come on. So he says, I urge you to take heart. There will be no loss of life among you but only the ship. None of you are going to die. How much authority do you think Paul had at that moment? When he got up, I mean, we are hopeless. We are dead. Like we are so dead. We had to throw all of our gear off. We've thrown all of our, all of the, the bunch of the stuff we were transporting, we've dumped. We haven't seen daylight. We haven't even seen a star or the sun or the moon for days. And Paul gets up and he says, I told you so. You should have listened to me. But now listen. I urge you, take heart. No one is going to die, but the ship is going to be lost. This very night there stood before me an angel of the God to whom I belong and to whom I worship. And he said, do not be afraid, Paul. You must stand before Caesar. And behold, God has granted you all of these who sail with you. So take heart, men, for I have faith in God that it will be exactly as I have been told. How do you like that? Paul was right there with him. He's afraid. He is, he is wondering what in the world, God, I thought you wanted me to go to and show before Caesar, but I'm going to die in this boat. What are you doing? And the Lord appears to him. And I love this phrase. You must stand before Caesar and God has granted to you all of those who sail with you. God has given a gift to Paul, which is all of the people that are in that boat. Who's in charge now, right? Who is in charge the whole time? I think these guys could have been just the most blind, stupid sailors ever, and Paul would have still made it to Rome, right? Because God says, you must appear before Caesar. I've, God says to Paul, I am going to get you there. And I'm giving you all of these people that are sailing with you. I'm giving you authority over them. I'm granting them to you. And he says, we have to run aground on an island. And they listen to him. When the 14th night had come, think about that. 14 days of no daylight, of constant rocking, shaking, hit it about their off course. We're being driven across the Adriatic Sea and about midnight, the sailors suspected that they were nearing land. They took a sounding and found 20 fathoms. A little farther on, they took a sounding again and found 15 fathoms. So they realized that the, the bottom is getting shallower. It's getting shallower and shallower. They had, they had these weights and they would put a whole bunch of fat and grease on the, the bottom. They'd have a weight and it would be hollow on the bottom. 
and then they would stuff a whole bunch of fat and grease in there that was like waterproof, but sticky. And then they would lower a rope down off their boat until it didn't lower anymore. And they would let it boom, 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 you know, on the bottom a little bit. And they would pull it back up and stuck in that grease was the sand, was whatever was on the bottom of the ocean at that point, at that depth. So they would know how deep it was from how much rope they let out. And they would know what the bottom makeup of, of, the, of the, the, surf, the surface, the bottom was, if it was sand, if it was rocks, if it was other pieces of ships, you know, if you pull that up and you get a whole bunch of wooden ship parts in it, then you know there's a bunch of shipwrecks in this area. If you get a bunch of sand, then you know you're about to come up on a sandbar kind of thing. Uh, fearing they might run down the rocks. Oh, so they took a sounding. They find that it's getting shallower and shallower. They're afraid they're going to run on rocks. So they let down anchors and they pray for daylight because they really don't want to smash onto the rocks and smash run aground in the night when they can't see anything. They're just hoping, give us a break, give us some sort of light that we can see what we're smashing into. Then the sailors were seeking to escape and they lowered the ship's lifeboat. Remember the lifeboat? And they were going to, they said they were going to lay out anchors, but they were really trying to escape. Well, the problem with this is if your whole crew leaves you and the only people on the ship are people that don't know how to sail, then you don't know how to smash into the running ground like they're going to do. So Paul, remember I asked who's in charge here? Paul said to the centurion and the soldiers, unless this, these men stay on the ship, you can't be saved. You can't be rescued. So the soldiers cut away the ropes of the ship's lifeboat and they let it go. We're all dying or we're all living. You guys aren't escaping on this life raft business. Isn't this, this is adventure, you guys. Day is about to dawn. Paul urged them all, eat some food. Today is the 14th day that you've continued in suspense and without food. And we've taken nothing. So eat some food. It'll give you strength. For not a hair will perish from the head of any of you. None of you are going to die. When he said these things, he took the bread. He gave thanks to God in the presence of all who broke it. And they began to eat. There's some bogus nonsense that they all had communion here. They didn't have communion here. They were just eating the bread. Don't beware of people making something out of nothing. He was thankful. He ate the bread. They were all encouraged. They ate some food themselves. There were 276 people on the ship. So now we get to find out how big this 276 people. They ate then they lightened the ship, throwing out the wheat into the sea. So now this is the last. We are totally giving up. We just want to survive. And so they throw all the wheat overboard into the sea. Daylight comes. They can't recognize the land, but they can see a bay. They try to run. They cast off the anchors. They left them in the sea. So now they don't have anchors anymore to even ever stop they don't have any wheat so they don't have very much ballast they don't have what they were coming for they are really desperate and they host the sail up and the wind and they head for the beach 
and they smash on a reef and they run the vessel into the ground. The bow struck, remained immovable. The stern starts to get hit by the waves and the back of the boat starts to break up into pieces. And all of a sudden the soldiers, soldiers plan was to kill all the prisoners unless they should swim away and escape. So remember under Roman law, if you have a prisoner and the prisoner escapes, it's your life for their life. So the Romans are like, dude, I'm not getting killed because this guy escapes when we go shipwrecked. So I'm going to kill my prisoner and then escape. And the centurion wishing to save Paul. Remember how the centurion was letting Paul have all these favors? If all the soldiers are like, we're all going to kill our prisoners. That means he has to kill Paul. He says, no, 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 don't do it. He ordered those who could swim to jump overboard first and make for the land. The rest of the people on planks or pieces of the ship grab something and float. And so they don't kill anybody and they all make it to land. Not a single person. It was not common to know how to swim. There was no American Red Cross giving swimming lessons at Harky Pool all summer. It was rare. And they all make it to land. So that's the end of chapter 27. I don't know what you got out of this, but I got just very impressed with how bold and confident Paul was. At no point did he panic and say, Oh, you stupid Romans, you should have never arrested me. Right? The closest he got was, Y'all should listen to me. I told you. But he followed that up with a message from God that God was still going to have mercy on them. So if you were a Greek person and you had heard a little bit about this Jesus and you had heard a little bit about this Paul and you're reading this story, there's this whole underlying message that you're getting from this. And that is that Paul is a good guy. Because if he got shipwrecked, oh, this is the gods and fate coming down on him and this is judgment. But then he says, listen to God. God, none of you are going to be harmed. We have to do it my way. And now all of a sudden he makes it and everything he said came true and is right. If you were a Greek person and you believed in fate, you'd be like, wow, maybe this Paul guy is right. And it's so funny because here we are, it's 2022 and we still live a little bit more like Romans than like Christians. A bad thing happens, you know, and we say, oh man, you shouldn't have done that. A tree fell on your house. You shouldn't have watched that stupid movie. Maybe you weren't doing the right thing. And that is totally not how God's character works at all. That is not how God works in the scriptures. That there's stuff that happens and it's bad, right? A typhoon, a tornado hit his boat. Was it because Paul was unrighteous? No, it's because weather and physics. <laughs> but how did Paul respond to that? The Lord is with us. The Lord is taking care of us. If we do what the Lord says, he'll carry us through this. And so it's a cautionary tale for Greeks, written in a Greek style, but it's also cautionary for us. That we have choices to live by and we can judge and we can be like, oh man, God must not like those people or God's curse must be on them. You know what? God's curse was on Jesus. 
And Jesus took all of God's curse. And so now, it says Romans 8, 1, there's no condemnation for those that are in Christ Jesus. For everybody that follows Jesus, anything bad that ever happens to them is not a curse from God. Because God doesn't work that way. He doesn't do that. He put his whole curse on Jesus for you, and now you are completely curse-free for the rest of your life. So next week, we are going to finish the book of Acts. Sure, they all washed up onto a shore. What's going to happen to them? You don't know. I'll act like I don't know. It'll be a surprise. It'll be fun. And then we'll talk about where we'll go next as we learn about God's love for us from the scriptures. Let's pray. Lord, you are so good. We praise you and we thank you that we can trust you all the time. That even, even in a moment where there was no light or day for 14 days on a boat during a storm, that you can even there show off and be there with Paul, be there with your church and work your salvation. You are always saving us from something, Lord. And we thank you so much for that. I pray that you would bless us this week all the things that happen and all the things that go on, that we would be able to see your salvation in it, that we would be able to share your salvation with others as they go through troubling, terrible things, and that we would just exalt you in every circumstance because you deserve it and you are awesome and you are worthy. We love you, Lord. Amen.